really good to be with all of you, the Journey Church family today. It's a privilege, a high privilege to worship God with you. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll know that you've been reading and we're discussing and we're having this conversation around the book that has become really a cultural phenomenon called The Shack. And we're in a series of messages that we call Journey at The Shack. And I found out this week what a, an incredibly powerful sales force controversy can be, especially for a book. You know, for the last 33 plus straight weeks, The Shack has been holding this number one spot on the New York Times best-selling list for a category they call paperback trade fiction books. And uh, the only thing I know about that is that The Shack would fall into that category, paperback trade fiction. That's all I know about that. And The Shack actually reported significant growth in book sales in the last month, while overall book sales is declining. Publishers Weekly just reported a 6.6% drop in overall book sales the week ending December 7th. We're not reading as much these days, or at least we're not buying as many books these days. BookScan, though, in the same period of time, reported a 22.5% increase in sales of the shack during that exact same time period. And when you have a thousand or so people reading the shack, that might make a difference in all of that, right? We're contributing to that growth and success. And I heard a story this week that just sort of proves the point, that controversy somehow manages to sell books. I heard a story about a guy who had some people in his life who he holds in very high regard telling people that they shouldn't read The Shack. And he heard these people telling him that he should not read The Shack. And they were using all the same arguments that you would read if you Googled The Shack criticism, which I invite you to do. And if you go there, you would see that they're saying that the shack is some sort of new age conspiracy. That's what this guy heard people saying. Or the shack offers some sort of counterfeit Jesus. Or the shack is written by a false prophet who is seeking to lead the entire capital C church astray. Or the shack is just pure, straight heresy. And so this guy heard these people who he, is, he holds in very high regard telling him that he should not read the book. But what do you suppose the very first thing that he did after hearing that was? That's exactly right. He went and he bought himself the book and he read it. And then you know what else he did? He started buying it for other people and giving away to other people. And it just goes to show that research is right. Research actually shows that way more people are willing to buy and read a book after reading a negative review than they do after reading a positive review. Criticism has a way, you know this, of piquing our curiosity about why in the world somebody would go so far out of their way to renounce and denounce and criticize someone else's work. And we're seeing that exact thing very much in play with this book called The Shack. And this week we're just going to jump headlong into some of the tension that we see in view in the second chunk of the Shack book. I hope you've all been reading the book. If you haven't been, it's not too late to get on board and get in and get on. I don't think anything I say today will necessarily spoil it for you, maybe a little bit, but I'll do my best to keep from spoiling the book. That's never fun. And to set this conversation up around tension, I want to tell you another story that I heard this week. And this one lands, frankly, with a bit of a thud, all right? I heard about a dad who gave the Shack book to his grown adult daughter. He said, look, honey, this book had an incredible impact on me, and I just invite you to, would you read it, please? And it wasn't like a high-pressure sales pitch, you must read this. It was just an invitation with a book to read it. Now, this daughter had heard a lot about the book. 
She had read the criticism. She had been around it. And she just said, Dad, I don't want the book. I won't have anything to do with it. He's like, well, what, what, why? She said, Dad, that book is dangerous. That book is absolutely dangerous. Someone could get the wrong impression about God by reading that book. And this dad, he's smart and very quick on his feet. I, I wouldn't have ever thought of this. He countered her with this. He said, honey, how many people do you know who have read the Bible and gotten the wrong impression of who God is? And it lands with a bit of a thud, doesn't it? But how many people do you know who have read a verse or a few verses or just a slice of the Bible and gotten the wrong impression about who God is? And that might be very difficult for some of us to admit, but he makes a brilliant point in my view. Now remember, The Shack is a fictional book. Would you say that out loud with me, please? The Shack is a fictional book. It is not a systematic theology book. It is a fictional book written by a guy who is just flat willing to step right into the middle of the tensions. And there's a lot of it that exists in any intellectually honest conversation about God and who he is and how he chooses to engage with humanity. I got an email from a friend this week who said, man, I wish I had written the shack, this gal said. Man, I had wish I had written The Shack. And she wasn't saying it because of the fame or the acclaim or the money or anything else like that. She summed it up by saying, for me, it's all about the guts. Young's guts in just stepping right into the middle of this tension that exists when we're intellectually honest in the God conversation, who God is, how he chooses to engage with humanity, the guts. And the Bible, always remember this, the Bible does not ever require us to treat it like it's a footlocker. Now, you know what a footlocker is, right? Maybe you've been in the military or at least seen a military footlocker. They're just sort of chest things that very often sit at the ends of beds in military barracks, right? And they have these latches and these locks and these hinges and you lift this big lid up and you put stuff in there and then you close it up and you put the latches down and sometimes if there's important stuff in there, you lock it up tight, right? The Bible for us never requires that we treat it like a footlocker with locks and with latches and with hinges on it. Rather, instead, the Bible functions much more like a window than it does a footlocker. I love what C.S. Lewis says in that very vein. He said this, Through the Bible and by the gospel, I not only see the light, but I see everything else by that light. Through the Bible and by the gospel, I not only see the light, but I see everything else by that light. The Bible needn't ever be treated by us like it's a footlocker, protected with the lid down, locked up tight, closed up, isolated away from the very real stuff of life. The tension that we encounter very often as we're walking around planet Earth, living life, and the Bible. Because there is often this tension that exists. The gospel And God's word, the Bible, are so often revealed in their most dramatic and dynamic way when they are intentionally and purposefully brought into contact with the things that we're encountering in life, tension included. Through our conversation about the shack, we're actually inviting the Bible to serve as our window 
through which we view the shack and we view things like the shack. Because see, it's when we do that, not just with the shack, but with everything that we come in contact with in life, that the gospel actually and God's word actually breathes life and perspective and health into the depths of our soul. That's why I'll never ever stand on this stage and tell you what to read and what not to read. You won't hear me do it. I will never tell you what to watch and what not to watch. I will never tell you what to listen to and what not to listen to. Rather, I'd prefer instead that we as a community called Journey Church, that one of our hallmarks, one of our cornerstones would be that we could actually pick up anything and we could run it through the grid of God's word and that we could all, not just me or not just a few, not just a leader, that we could all discern and make a discerning decision about stuff's value, its place, its contribution, or lack of contribution to the God conversation. And I want to tell you something, that censorship is way easier than teaching discernment. It's way easier. It would be a lot easier just to go, don't read that, don't look at that, don't watch that, don't listen to that, just stay away from that. It's dangerous. It's much easier. But around this place, I and we will take the teaching discernment position every single time because I or your parents or your mentor or your discipler or whoever it is who you use as your, what I like to call your intake valve, meaning your person who helps you decide what to take in or what not to take in to you, will not always, those people, I or your mentor or your discipler or whoever, your parents, will not always be there with you to tell you what you should read or what you should not read, what you should listen to or what you should not listen to, what you should watch or what you shouldn't watch. They will not always be there with you. Part of growing up in Christ, part of becoming a fully formed Christ follower is being able to walk out discernment using the grid of God's word just as it was intended for, as a window that lights the way ahead, the way that we should walk as followers of Jesus Christ. And in this week's section of The Shack, Mac, who you all know, I hope, who is the main character of the book, takes Papa, who is God, right, up on his invitation to revisit The Shack the scene of his worst horror. If you read last week's section, you know that Mac received a letter from God in his United States Postal Service approved mailbox, a letter from God in his mailbox. We asked the question, does God send people letters or could God send people letters? Young says, God does, God can, God is able to send people letters. And this week we find out that Mac actually takes Papa, God, up on his invitation and he goes out to the shack, which is the scene of his very worst horror. And when he steps into the shack, his years of pent-up anger and frustration and grief and sadness come rushing out in a torrent directed primarily at God. And after this enormous outburst where he's throwing things and breaking things, Max slumps over into a very deep sleep on the floor of that awful shack. He abruptly wakes up some time later. He resolves in really just an instant to stop seeking God because God hadn't met him there. He's like, well, look, here I am, and God, you're nowhere to be found, so I'm done seeking you. He heads out the door of the shack to return to his car to head home. 
But on his way to the car, those of you who've read this know, the shack and everything about the shack and everything about the valley in which the shack was located in dramatically gets transformed from this very awful, depressing, disheartening place to something really so wonderful that it defies explanation. Maybe God was going to meet him in that place after all. And Mac turns on his heels when he sees this transformation. And he returns to this freshly renovated shack. I don't think we could call it a shack anymore, more like a cabin or maybe even a vacation home now. And he walks up onto the porch, and you remember the scene. He's about to bang on the door, right? Which, doesn't it just make sense that that's what you would do at an abode where you think God is inside, that you would just bang on the door. And on page 82 of the shack, here's what happens. Just as he raised his fist to do so, just as he raised his fist to bang on the door, the door flew open and he was looking directly into the face of a large, beaming, African-American woman. <gasps> and that's what we do, right? We go like, like Aunt Jemima. And I hadn't read anything about the shack the first time I read it, but when Aunt Jemima answered the front door of the shack comes charging out, I was like, oh my gosh, that is God, isn't it? I just knew. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And all of us, like our eyebrows raise and we go, you can't turn God into Aunt Jemima. You, you don't get to do that, right? But it's here that one of the fantastic tension points that Jung introduces into the conversation of who God is and how he chooses to function and relate to humanity. The question becomes, could God reveal himself as a large, beaming African-American? Could God reveal himself as Aunt Jemima? Could he? Well, of course he could. Of course he could. None of us wants to be on the wrong side of that conversation of saying, well, no, God couldn't reveal himself because then what are we doing? We're limiting God. It's a very awkward place to be. The limitless God of the universe to actually put him in a box and say, nope, he cannot do. Nobody wants to argue that point. And on page 93, Young does a fantastic job of fleshing this out a little bit further. McKinsey, Papa says, Aunt Jemima, I am neither male nor female. Even though both genders are derived from my nature, if I choose to appear to you as a man or a woman, it's because I love you. For me to appear to you as a woman and suggest you call me Papa is simply to mix metaphors to help you keep from falling so easily back into your religious conditioning. She leaned forward as if to share a secret. To reveal myself to you as a very large white grandfather figure with flowing beard like Gandalf would simply reinforce your religious stereotypes. And this weekend is not about reinforcing your religious stereotypes. And because we've read the book, we know Mac's dad stuff, don't we? Mac has dad stuff. We talked about some of it last weekend. I also talked a little bit about Paul Young's dad stuff. He was the son of a missionary. His parents were missionaries, and he said it was the one of the most messed up ways to grow up ever. He's got dad stuff. And how many of us have dad stuff, right? And you think about Mac, and you think about Paul Young, and you think about a whole bunch of us walking planet Earth today who have dad issues. All of that adds up to us actually painting the face of God 
with the face of our earthly dads. We all do it. And for a whole bunch of us, because we had dads that were difficult, for a whole bunch of us, that painting God with the face of our earthly father comes at a great detriment to our relationship with God. Because see, if we had a lousy earthly dad, or if we have a lousy earthly dad, why in the world do you suppose we would want to sign up for a relationship with our heavenly father who we expect will function just like our earthly dad does and did? And while certainly all, and I mean all of our earthly dads, were attempting to do their best, reality is they may have just left us deeply, deeply wounded, deeply, deeply scarred. Why would we want to sign up for more of the same? And so we transfer the face of our earthly father to the face of God and if we have or we had a dad who withheld affection from us, and if we have or we had a dad who was harsh every time, the first time with us, if we have or had a dad who was judgmental the first time, every time with us, then guess exactly how we perceive God, our Heavenly Father, functioning. Well, of course, God is just a God who withholds affection, who is harsh every time, who is judgmental every single time. We paint the face of God the Father with the face of our earthly Father. And with that kind of a view of God, is it any wonder that so many of us approach God crying out to him, I'll be good, because we said it to our earthly Father. I'll be good, I promise, I'll be good. But God is not just about us being good. God is not just about us being good. God is instead all about us trusting him and holding tightly to him and following him and relating to him, not as the angry father who a whole bunch of people grew up on earth with, but as he really is. The God who every single time leads, leads, with his love, the God who every single time leads out with his affection, the God who every single time leads out with his compassion, the God who every single time leads out with his tenderness. And dads, if you've got children, which is the definition of a dad, you have children, right? Mm -hmm. I don't wanna overwhelm you with this, but whether we like it or not, how we relate to our kids sets for them the image of who God the Father in heaven is and how he functions and how he relates to them. We cast that image for our children. That's heavy. Very, very heavy. And we must, dads, craft that image very carefully. It doesn't mean we walk around scared and on eggshells. We just walk with a keen awareness that how we lead our kids, how we interact with our kids, is where their view of how they will relate to God comes from. We're the well of that. We're the cast, the mold for that. 
And in this instance, where Young is messing around with portraying God as Aunt Jemima, the shack, very brilliantly in my view, highlights God's incredible nature to meet us right where we are and to lead us right where he is. It's God meeting those of us who have dad issues in a place where we can get past that where we can move to a place of healing in all of that. It's the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, isn't it? God didn't sit in heaven and say, well, you better have fun trying to figure out a way to get to me because there's a large chasm that exists between us. Better get about it. No. God never says that we must come to him on his terms. Rather, he came to us through his son, Jesus Christ, on our terms. God became flesh. God put skin on to come our way, to meet us right where we are, right where we're living. And absolutely, Jesus Christ was incarnated as a man, as a male. But get this, God as spirit doesn't have gender. Even though we fully recognize and we fully embrace and we fully believe that God has taken on the imagery of the Father, to express his heart to us. That's the orthodox Christian view, orthodox biblical view. But as a matter of fact, scripture in several places uses some very powerful female imagery to bring us to a complete understanding of some of the other aspects of God's character. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together, watch this, as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you wouldn't let me. Strong mother, strong female imagery being used by Jesus Christ himself. And Young is choosing to use some characterizations of God to mess with our religious stereotypes and to get us to consider God as he really is, not just God as we envision him being, just a projection of us, which he is not. And the conversation continues a little bit later on page 88 and 89 of the shack when Mac asks Jesus in this instance, am I going crazy? Am I supposed to believe that God is a big black woman with a questionable sense of humor? And you know what I'm talking about if you've read. And Jesus laughed. She's a riot, he said. You can always count on her to throw you a curve or two. She loves surprises. And even though you might not think it, her timing is always perfect. And if you were to ask Paul Young, I believe, to proof text where in the world, in the Bible, you would find that kind of a mentality, that kind of a philosophy, you might look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Young might suggest Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. Here's what the Bible says. Yet God has made everything beautiful, what? For its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. See, God today is continuing to weave his divine tapestry of his will. And for a whole bunch of us who follow Jesus, we make ourselves incredibly busy trying to figure out what exactly God's will is, right? I heard a guy sum it up this way one time when he was talking about 
uncovering and discovering God's will. He said, it's as if we're sheep, which the Bible refers to us human beings as a whole bunch of times. It's as if we're sheep. And when we go seeking after the will of God a whole bunch of times, we actually want God to tell us specifically what clump of grass we're supposed to nibble on as sheep, right? And that's this picture we have about discovering God's will, that God's going to lay it out perfectly clearly every step of the way for us. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 tells us as much. The human mind has been intentionally limited by God. So of course we're going to be surprised by some of the things that God throws at us as his plan unfolds. That's precisely as it should be. It's God's plan, not our plan. I cannot tell you the number of times in my past, my recent past as a matter of fact, when I've asked God, I've prayed hard to God that he would give me the C word, clarity, right? Lots of us pray the clarity prayer. It's almost as if in the clarity prayer, I've asked God to show me, as the text says, the whole scope of his work from beginning to end. God, would you just make it all perfectly clear? Show me everything that's going to unfold because I don't ever want to be surprised. I don't ever want to be stunned. I don't ever want to feel like you threw a curveball at me. God, would you just make it very clear? Please, clarity, God. But since when is clarity the goal of following Jesus? Really. Since when is clarity the goal of following Jesus? If it's all so very clear, where is the faith in that? If it's also very clear, where is the faith in that? Rather, get this, the centerpiece of following Jesus, as Brennan Manning so powerfully suggests, the centerpiece of following Jesus is trust. That's it. The centerpiece of following Jesus is trust. Trust that God is actually capable of accomplishing the whole scope of his work from beginning to end. The divine tapestry that he is weaving right now that we are all an intricate and intimate part of, that he's able of fulfilling it. He's able to bring it about. There's a story that's told about the time that ethicist John Kavanaugh went to work for three months at Mother Teresa's House of the Dying in Calcutta, India. It's an actual place. Mother Teresa started it, the house of the dying. See, Kavanaugh went there because he was seeking direction for how he should spend the rest of his life on earth. Nothing like three months at a place called the house of the dying to clarify what our lives should look like. In his very first morning there, he bumped into Mother Teresa. He met her and she promptly, right out of the chutes, asked him, and what can I do for you, sir? Kavanaugh said, um, well, you could pray for me. Sure. She said, I will. What do you want me to pray for? She asked. He said, would you please pray that I might have clarity? Would you please pray that I might have clarity? And like very firmly, sort of uncharacteristically for little sweet, precious Mother Teresa, she sort of fired back at him and said, no, I will not pray for that. And he, you know, oh gosh, I, you just asked for a prayer request. I gave you one. What's wrong with that? What? Why not? Why won't you pray for clarity? Mother Teresa said this, clarity is the last thing that you are clinging to and must let go of. 
Clarity is the last thing that you're clinging to and must let go of. And Kavanaugh commented in response, almost offhandedly, well, you seem to always have such clarity like I want to have. And she just laughed, like uproariously laughed. I have never had clarity. Coming from Mother Teresa, that's quite an astonishing revelation. I have never had clarity. What I have always had instead, she said, is trust. I've had trust. So I will pray, she told John Kavanaugh, that you will trust God. Simply put, trust is what this whole faith deal is about. It's not at all about seeing around every corner or understanding why everything happens or about knowing precisely when every curveball is going to come our way. Rather, this faith thing is all about us trusting the one who is the author and who is the finisher and who is the perfecter of this amazing journey that we call faith in God. And I invite and I challenge you today, not tomorrow, today, to step out of the place where you think you must have all of the clarity. Step out of that place and move to a place where you trust God. I don't know where it is for you. Maybe you have several places where you've been clinging to clarity when really it just simply needs to be about trust. Trust that God knows the way ahead. Trust that God does love you. Trust that he is involved intimately involved, and would you just let that be enough for you? Trust. Trust. And from that place, we move into another one of the most tension-filled portions of the shack, especially if you read the critics. Uh, page 95 and 96, here's what the book says. Papa didn't answer only looked down at their hands. His gaze followed hers, and for the first time, Mac noticed the scars in her wrists, like those he now assumed Jesus had on his. She allowed him to tenderly touch the scars, outlines of a deep piercing, and he finally looked up into her eyes. Tears were slowly making their way down her face, little pathways through the flower that dusted her cheeks. Don't ever think that what my son chose to do didn't cost us dearly. This is Papa speaking. Love always leaves a significant mark, she stated softly and gently. We were there together. Speaking of the cross, Jesus dying on the cross. And Mac, he's surprised, the book says. At the cross? Now wait, I thought you left him. You know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mac said. It was a scripture that had often haunted Mac in the great sadness. You misunderstand the mystery there, Papa said. Regardless of what Jesus felt at that moment, I, Papa, never left him. How can you say that, Mac counters. You abandon him just like you abandon me. Mackenzie, I never left him and I have never left you. And the verse that Mac refers to is Matthew 27, verse 46. About three o'clock, you know this verse, Jesus called out with a loud voice. He's hanging on the cross, about to die. With a loud voice. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And it's that very verse right there that builds this whole theological foundation for the understanding that God did indeed abandon Jesus as he became sin for us on the cross. But Young's assertion through the shack, a fictional book, 
that God was actually present with Jesus Christ at the cross has some biblical weight to it. It isn't just harebrained, see? Because, see, it would have actually been entirely impossible for God the Father to forsake or for God the Father to fully abandon, as the New Living renders it, his very own son. Impossible. But in the midst of that impossibility, God as judge would have been required to have been separated from Jesus if he was to experience full spiritual death in the place of us, sinful humanity. So see, Jesus' forsakenness and Jesus' abandonment by God the Father did not cause them to be separated in their essence or in their substance, see. It can't happen because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, this whole threeness yet oneness thing, which, by the way, I know you read this week the section uh, unpacking the hierarchy of the Trinity, and it's one of the other most tension-filled points of the book. Because of time, I couldn't treat it this week, so I will treat it next week. Hierarchy of the Trinity, next week, I'll unpack that together, just so you know. We aren't just skipping over the top of that one. We gotta press into that. There is certainly this relational separation during the time in which Jesus hung on the cross and bore the sins of humanity. Jesus cannot ever be separated. Jesus cannot ever be forsaken entirely from God. He could not ever be fully abandoned by God because of the very nature of their oneness. They are one, yet they're three. See. And Jesus had said on more than one occasion that his whole mission in coming to earth was to be a ransom for many. And it was by his death on the cross that that fateful prediction was actually walked out, fleshed out, lived out. Jesus Christ suffers our punishment for our sin on the cross, becoming our sin on the cross. Now, it begs the question, would God have nail scars, God the Father, have nail scars on his wrists? What the answer? I don't know. I do not know. But the text that lends some credence to that view is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Watch this. Here it is. For God was in, Paul's writing about Jesus hanging on the cross and starts right out by saying, for God was in Christ. For God was in Christ. Four little words and a ton of mystery. What that looked like, how that fleshed out, we do not know. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. It is a mystery. Does God have nail marks on his wrist? It's a mystery. On the other side of this life, we'll find out. But for now, it remains a mystery. And Jesus, what we do know is that Jesus became sin for us on the cross. The perfect and flawless Son of God, the very second person of the Trinity, took our weight of sin upon himself as the sacrificial offering for the payment of our sin. The sin of all of humanity which begs the question, why? Why would God do that? Mac tells us why. 
We're going to wrap up here today from pages 118 and 119 of the book. Max says this to Papa. You seem especially fond of a lot of people, Mac observed with a suspicious look. Are there any who you are not especially fond of? She lifted her head and she rolled her eyes as if she were mentally going through a catalog of every being ever created. Nope, I haven't been able to find any, she said. Which is one of the most poignant and brilliant points of the entire book, The Shack. You seem especially fond of a lot of people. And Papa replies with, precisely, and I've never found one that I'm not especially fond of. And guys, there's a lot of places where we can misunderstand God, and there's a lot of places where we can misunderstand how he relates and reveals himself to humanity. But it's that little line right there that captures so incredibly well the heart of God for every single human being on planet Earth. You seem especially fond of a lot of people. You, all of you. God is especially fond of all of you. He just is. And because of God's incredible fondness, look at John 3.16 and verse 17. Because of God's fondness, he gave us his one and only son. And remember, God just didn't give his one and only son over so that we could let go to a picnic with him together and hang out. God gave his one and only son to die on the cross because of his love, because of his fondness for us so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17, we often look right past verse 17. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There's a lot of people who think that God leads with the judgmental foot every single time, with the harsh foot every single time, with the critical foot every single time, some of it because we have dads who led that way every single time. But John 3.17 makes it very clear that that's not the case, that God leads every single time with his love foot forward, his fondness forward every single time because he is incredibly fond of every single one of you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how bad it is, he is incredibly fond of you. Just take your stuff and set it aside, would you please? And I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and just tell God what you're thinking about. Just interact with the Lord. And I'm going to ask you to do me the favor, if you would, of just keeping your heads bowed and your eyes closed during this time, please. And in a room like this, there's a whole bunch of people who have a lot of misunderstandings about God and who he is and how he relates. To think that I could correct or clarify those in just one setting would be, well, madness, frankly. But no matter what you have understood or misunderstood about God in the past, what God wants you to hear first and foremost today is that he leads out with his fondness for you. He 
he leads out with his fondness for you. He is so incredibly fond of you that he has invited you and every single person on the planet to receive the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we are not ever the same. We're forgiven, see. No matter what we've done, no matter how bad we think it is, God says, I forgive you of that. When we do, we're adopted. Adopted into God's family. And we're privileged to spend eternity with God. Starting right now. It isn't just a someday heaven thing. It's a starting right now thing. And maybe you're here today. And maybe the truth that God loves you, that God is incredibly fond of you, that God gave his one and only son to die on the cross for you, hit home with you for the very first time in your life today, and you want to receive his gift. If that's you, you can move right into a relationship with him. You can do that by praying along with me a prayer that goes something like this. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have. But today, God, I realize that you are perfect and that you are holy and that my sin has separated me from you. God, I'm telling you today that I believe with everything in me that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I ask you to please forgive me and please send Jesus to live inside of me because God, I want you to be my friend and God, I need you to change me and God, I really need you to clean my life up. And if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ to receive that incredible gift, there's not a bigger decision you'll ever make. Nothing matters more and nothing carries more weight. And it's such a big deal that around here we actually ask people to tell us when they made that decision. Nobody's looking around and nobody's going to embarrass you. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and just say, yes, I stepped across the line of faith in Jesus today. I received the gift of Jesus Christ. You can do that now. Just slip your hand up and make eye contact with me, please. Make sure I catch your eye if you would. God is changing you right now. You will not ever be the same. Yeah, you back there, way to go. God's changing you. Make sure, and you right there, right now, God is changing you and he's making you brand new. Life will not ever be the same. You are forgiven. You are set free. You are new. God, we receive your incredible love and we're so grateful for your fondness for us. You don't have to love us. You don't have to be fond of us. There's a lot of stuff we do that just flat ticks you off. But the fact that you still love us, that you lead out with your fondness is stunning. And God, it's our pledge that we won't take that for granted. We won't abuse your grace. Rather, we will seek to walk in courage what it means to be obedient to you, to trust you, to let go of the clarity thing, 
and to just step out in faith because that's what it's about to walk with you, faith. And because it's faith, we don't get to see the whole deal, but we trust. Thanks for meeting with us, God. Thanks for loving us, God. We love you in return. In Jesus' name we pray this.